we've got to expand the way we think about safety. Safety is not only safety from the very small risk of serious victimization from people who are released from prison early. Safety is having uh, security and order and predictability in daily life. And, and public health is as fundamental to that idea of safety uh, as protection from crime. As of February 17th, 2021, only 12% of the United States population has been partially vaccinated, as reported by the New York Times. While new President Joe Biden hopes for 100 million vaccines distributed by his 100th day, vaccine deliveries are being impacted by severe winter weather, and people may face unexpected appointment cancellations as vaccine supplies dwindle. Furthermore, there has been mass confusion about how to sign up for vaccine appointments. And in New York, where PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Department is reporting from, Gothamist has reported that all but four state-run vaccination sites are fully booked through April 16th. This scramble for safety has obviously been stressful for us and our loved ones, even more so for people with loved ones inside. According to the Marshall Project, one in five prisoners in the U.S. has had COVID, and people who are incarcerated have tested positive for the coronavirus at a rate that is four to five times higher than the general population. Several university and medical experts have studied the spread of COVID inside the United States jails and prisons, concerned about how the spread inside can exacerbate the pandemic. They've also examined correctional healthcare systems to ensure that people inside can get the proper care they need, as well as ensure that local hospitals are less overwhelmed, since usually people who are incarcerated are brought to hospitals for emergency services. In this podcast, we spoke to one such university expert, Dr. Bruce Western. A professor of sociology at Columbia University, Dr. Western also co-directs Columbia's Justice Lab and has worked alongside other experts in publishing the report, Decarcerating Correctional Facilities During COVID-19, as well as the white paper, Recommendations for Prioritization and Distribution of COVID-19 Vaccine in Jails and Prisons. We hope Dr. Western's expansion of the definition of safety, one that centers public health, moves you as much as it moved us. I'm Nicolette Natale. Pen America's Works of Justice podcast producer. And without further ado, we welcome you to listen to this week's Temperature Check, COVID-19 Behind Bars. Hi, Dr. Western, and thank you so much for joining us today. Before we begin, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how your initial research on economic inequality led you to study mass incarceration and eventually co-direct Columbia's Justice Lab. Yeah, thanks a lot for inviting me to talk, Nicolette. Um, I really started out as a student of poverty and labor markets. I was writing a lot about labor unions, mostly from a comparative perspective and uh, looking at differences between the United States and Europe. And, you know, I'm an Australian and I went to graduate school in the US. And over time, as America became my home, uh, uh, I, I felt increasingly, you know, I should be working on problems of economic inequality in the United States. And one of the most striking things for me was just the sheer scale of the penal system in America and the level of criminal justice involvement, particularly in low-income communities of color. And I, I thought, you know, if we really want to get uh, a handle on problems of poverty and joblessness, 
particularly in low-income Black communities, we need to understand what mass incarceration is doing to the economic opportunities in communities of color. And that's really how I came to do research in this area. Great. Thank you so much. So in October, you and your colleagues at the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine published Decarcerating Correctional Facilities During COVID-19, a report that's primarily for policymakers and public health officials, which recommends several strategies for decarceration that also take into account concerns regarding public safety. Could you share some of the most urgent and potentially effective strategies? Yeah. So, you know, as the COVID crisis unfolded in 2020, it became increasingly clear uh, that prisons and jails were some of the most enduring and intractable hotspots and clusters for the pandemic. And there have been correctional facilities in the United States where essentially everyone in those prisons and jails acquired the coronavirus infection. And that goes for incarcerated people, as well as staff who were working in the prisons. And in the National Academies panel, we were looking at data and we saw that the case rates among incarcerated people were nine times higher than in the general community. And among correctional staff, correctional officers who were working in prisons, it was about five times higher. And uh, and when you look at prisons and jails in America, infectious disease has been a longstanding problem. Uh, uh, Tuberculosis, hepatitis, influenza outbreaks. These have uh, uh, been longstanding problems in facilities that are often old, poorly ventilated, and in which correctional health care really lies outside of our public health care system. And so... When pandemics come along, prisons and jails not integrated into the process of pandemic preparedness. And on top of all of that, because incarceration rates are so historically high in the United States right now, overcrowding is also uh, a key problem and creates a breeding ground uh, for the spread of infectious disease. So what do you do? A key strategy that we recommend is you have to reduce uh, the population of prisons and jails, de-densify these institutions. And often that means single selling. So one person in one cell for prisons that have that design. Uh, Some prisons have dormitory, dormitory style housing units. It's very, very difficult to control infectious disease in those kinds of housing units. And you need very low populations in those sorts of settings. So the key recommendation we made to help control the spread of COVID in prisons and jails is you've got to reduce the population, de-densify the institutions. How do you do that? At the front end of the system, uh, you have to divert people who would ordinarily be coming in. And there's so much, I would call it gratuitous incarceration at the front end of the system. People are held pre-trial, pending the payment uh, of bail. There's uh, tons of incarceration in jail for people who are facing very low-level charges, and they're only being held because they can't afford to pay bail. In the context of a pandemic, I mean, that's problematic for a whole bunch of public policy reasons, but in the context of a pandemic, that's a huge public health problem, and a lot of that incarceration can be 
eliminated with no real risk to public safety, an enormous benefit uh, to public health. That's at the front end of the system. At the back end of the system, people who are medically vulnerable, it's a very medically vulnerable population to begin with, people who are medically vulnerable and uh, elderly who are facing very acute risks or being housed in overcrowded facilities need to be moved out of those facilities. A device to achieve that is compassionate release. Mm -hmm. And compassionate release should work in a way where medically vulnerable people can be released. And this would be people who have acute health vulnerabilities and elderly people. As prisons and jails have grown in America, the population inside has gotten older and older and older because people are serving longer and longer sentences. And the problem with compassionate release in America is what one of our one of our panelists often involved. The problem with compassionate release in America is that it's neither compassionate and it doesn't release anyone. And uh, the way statutes are written at the moment, you uh, have to be within six months of death. So you have to have a terminal disease and you have to be non-ambulatory. And that is far too restrictive in the context of a pandemic to release people who are facing you know, really serious health risks when COVID is raging through uh, a prison system. And so there's a good model for what compassionate release should look like. It's in the federal system. And in the federal system, medical criteria can be a criteria for release. And I think that's where we need to be. And in incredibly, we don't have that in the States. If we're going to release people, at scale in response to the pandemic as part of a, a public health strategy, we need to have social supports on the outside waiting for people when they come out. And that means healthcare, income support and stable housing, particularly if people need to quarantine. So in a nutshell, the, that's what we've got to do. Great. Thank you so much. I wanted to touch upon something that you were talking about in regards to compassionate release, because I know in New York, 1,049 people have applied for medical parole and only nine applications have been granted. And this has been documented in The Gothamist. So I was wondering if you could talk about options for advocacy, both for supporters outside and at the bureaucratic level to push this agenda. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, so there are two contending logics in conflict here. And there's the custodial logic of incarceration, which is extraordinarily risk averse. And the stated concern for safety overrules any other consideration. And uh, if there is the minutest possibility of risk that someone could be released and commit a serious crime, then whatever countervailing arguments uh, for release, someone could get very sick, someone is at risk of death because of their vulnerability to coronavirus. Um, those sorts of considerations are not given serious weight because the incarceration logic is so overwhelming and the risk aversion is so intense. The alternative logic is the public health logic. Mm -hmm. 
And it's a non-blaming logic at its core. People are at risk of getting sick. It's an infectious disease. If people get sick, that can make other people sick. And the harms uh, from uncontrolled infection are substantial. So what does this mean for the advocacy community? I think we need to talk about safety in a, a different way. And the advocates are not at odds with the correctional decision makers. The advocates want safety too, but they're defining safety, I would argue, in a broader way. They're not only concerned with the risks of serious crime who, um, among people who would be released early, many of whom incidentally pose very, very little risk of that serious crime, particularly if uh, old age is a release criterion, as it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's, uh, that's the ground on which the advocates should be working. I think, you know, the disease does not distinguish between incarcerated people and correctional staff. And the strategy of uh, keeping people locked up also poses a threat to correctional staff. Uh, advocates should enter into that argument as well. And I think the third part is that if people are properly supported after release, if we're attending to income continuity of health care and housing and, and doing that in a serious way, those risks that the correctional decision makers are worried about get reduced even further. So I think there's a multi-pronged argument that needs to be made. The big one is we've got to expand the way we think about safety. Safety is not only safety from the very small risk of serious victimization from people who are released from prison early. Safety is having uh, security and order and predictability in daily life and and. Public health is as fundamental to that idea of safety as protection from crime. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with you on that. So thank you for saying that. Um, I also just wanted to ask you a question because something that you talked about in the report is that more people have been released from jails than from prisons and that prisons face the strongest legal and political pressures to retain people in custody. And as a result, obstacles to meaningful decarceration for prisons are greatest. So could you talk about the the difference between the scenario in jails and prisons, as well as some of the obstacles for meaningful decarceration? Yeah, yeah. It's a really interesting question, the, the, the difference between prisons and jails at this moment. And, you know, jails have massive turnover, about 10 million people pass through America's jails every year, but only about 600,000 people are admitted to prison. And prisons are much bigger institutions. You know, there's overall, there's uh, about 1.4 million people in prison, but only about 700,000 in jails. Prisons are twice as big as jails. But the footprint of the jail is massive because people are just flooding through that institution. How have jails reduced their population in the COVID period, it's all diversion at the front end. And I got to say, a lot of it was not deliberate strategies of population reduction motivated by the public health crisis. A lot of it was due to the shutdown. And COVID restrictions were associated with a big drop in arrests, 
So, you know, people were locked in at home and they weren't out in the street vulnerable to arrest and the courts, court traffic significantly has shut down in the COVID period. So fewer people were coming into jail and the, the jail population reduced and that made them safer from uh, a COVID point of view, but it, it wasn't mostly the result of deliberate efforts to reduce incarceration. It was a, uh, a byproduct of the lockdown, the COVID lockdown. Um, uh, prisons much tougher. So jail populations decreased by 20%, prison populations uh, decreased by about 5% in the COVID period. And most of the population reduction that happened in prisons were also happening from diversion at the front end. Because fewer people were going to jail, fewer people were coming into prison from jail once, um, you know, once they were uh, sentenced. It is very, very difficult as a political matter in this country to release people early who have been convicted of felony offences and sentenced to prison, even though the public health argument for doing that is overwhelming. And so far, the public health argument has not won the day over the punitive criminal justice policy argument. So far, punishment has dominated public health and the incarceration logic has dominated the public health logic. We want to be blaming. We view people who are incarcerated in prison as undeserving of any relief of punishment in deference to public health that the entire community would enjoy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes me think of something that you were talking about earlier with the correctional health care facilities being largely outside of mainstream public health. So I was wondering if you could talk about some of the ramifications of that and also like what changes to the current correctional healthcare model would support a better management of this pandemic as well as future health crises. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, a, it, it's a problem with big implications. So, you know, there's this whole healthcare system in the United States and there are hospitals and doctors and nurses who are connected to Medicare and Medicaid and private insurance. And because of the way our healthcare system is designed, the enforcement of medical standards and oversight is intimately connected to medical billing and insurance and, and Medicare and, uh, and Medicaid. And so the way healthcare standards are enforced is part of a whole national system of the administration provision of healthcare. Healthcare in prisons and jails are not a part of that system. They're not subject to the same oversight uh, and enforcement of standards that the rest of the healthcare system is subject to. Healthcare inspectors in the United States could close down a hospital immediately if the inspection found that service was substandard. There's nothing like that in prisons uh, and jails. Uh, there's some accreditation. It's partial. A lot of systems are, are not accredited. But uh, removed from the rest of the U.S. healthcare system, 
in the context of the pandemic, a whole bunch of planning goes on as providers prepare for how to respond to significant increasing caseload when people start getting sick, showing up at their doctor's offices, showing up in hospitals. And a whole variety of protocols are adopted, often with guidance from the CDC. It's a big, organized, coordinated uh, process, although I have to say in the context of this pandemic, and a lot of people have observed this, there was really a vacuum of federal leadership in response to the pandemic. But there was a lot of pandemic preparedness planning. And it didn't happen in prisons and jails. They, the correctional health care wasn't integrated into that pandemic preparedness planning, even though it was known that prisons and jails are hotspots for infectious disease, because we've seen this with a whole bunch of other infectious disease outbreaks. So things like testing, personal protective equipment, protocols for quarantining and cohorting, there was no central guidance on that. And the states and counties were on their own. They were There was a lot of improvisation. CDC didn't introduce guidance until July, right? And and the pandemic was exploding in March. So what should we do? Uh, We need Medicaid. We need Medicaid in prisons. And that really has two effects. It would raise the standard of care because there would be federal billing for the real costs of healthcare would be much more proportionate to need and once the federal healthcare system is paying for medical services inside prisons, healthcare services inside prisons become subject to the same oversight that prevails out in the community, and it would open up the system. A problem with prisons in America is they're black boxes. They're institutions that are very difficult to penetrate, and it's very difficult to find accountability for what goes on inside them, and this would also have the benefit of beginning to provide some accountability for the health of people who are incarcerated. Great. Thank you. I also wanted to pivot a little bit to talk about the vaccine distribution inside since you and other university experts wrote recommendations for prioritization and distribution for COVID-19 vaccine in prisons and jails. And so I wanted to talk about how also in the decarceration report, you talked about how there was little demographic data as it pertains to releases, but the data that we currently have available indicate that white people have been released more from prisons and jails than black people. And this is highlighting a trend that we're currently seeing with the vaccine rollout in New York City, where the Gothamist has reported that in the first few weeks of vaccine distribution, white people have received about five times as much as the vaccine. So I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on how we're seeing the lack of racial equity play out in efforts towards decarceration and the vaccine rollout for people inside. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge, a huge question. We were thinking a lot about this in the context of decarceration. I think often what happens, right, unless you take a very intentional approach to racial equity and very self-conscious about it, in re-entry planning and population reductions. Uh, What you'll do is, you know, you'll you'll be screening people, you'll be trying to find good candidates for release where that's happening. It didn't happen a lot. But those screens are looking at things like, does someone have a stable housing to return to? Is there a, a network of family support? Will there be the economic resources to support successful 
uh, re-entry. Those criterion will work in favour of more advantaged incarcerated people tend to work in favour of whites more than blacks. And if uh, you don't take a, a very intentional approach to racial equity, all sorts of inequalities uh, uh, are going to be introduced through that. Similar with vaccine distribution, as you say already, right? And I think we're seeing this in other localities besides New York as, mm-hmm. uh, as well. I'm, I'm seeing reports from California and uh, the Times, I, I think, has been reporting on this in a number of cities, actually. And because the health infrastructure, the health delivery infrastructure, is better in white affluent communities, communities of colour are paying for the disinvestment that they've suffered from their public health uh, uh, system and uh, the vaccine is not being delivered as effectively. And I think the key thing here in the correctional context is you've got a system with massive racial disparities where African-Americans are about six times more likely to go to prison than whites. And for anyone who's visited prisons, you know, there's such a, a, a striking reality inside prisons. And I think there's been a lot of reluctance in a lot of states, but not all states, to roll out the vaccines inside prisons, even though the public health effect would be really substantial and really help to control the spread. Another piece of this too, and it's a hard question, is vaccine hesitancy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, incarcerated people have been the subjects of medical experiments and there's a long history there and a lot of distrust of healthcare systems uh, inside and there's an understandable reluctance to take up vaccines when they're available and there are strategies uh, that you can adopt to meet the challenge of that vaccine reluctance mm-hmm. but you have to you know you have to take that on if you're serious about you know meeting the public health challenge of the pandemic yeah yeah um, just like before we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to add? Yeah, we covered a lot. I think sort of at a larger level, if we zoom out from what's happening, you know, mass incarceration is, is just so, so profoundly dehumanizing, I think, to punish at the scale that we do with the severity that we do. We have to radically suspend our capacity for compassion and empathy to punish in that way. And I think the way we're handling the pandemic inside prisons and jails is really a byproduct of the way in which people get dehumanised, the way we cut off our sense of compassion and empathy. And I think at the most abstract level, you know, that's what we have to rebuild and the entire community in a pandemic with a very infectious disease is paying the price for treating you know some of our most marginalized segments of our uh, population with such cruelty and disregard we're all paying the price for that yeah i agree and i hope that there is more compassion and empathy to come so, so too. 
I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today a lot. Thank you so much for everything. Thanks a lot, Nicolette. I enjoyed the conversation. This episode was researched, hosted, and produced by myself, Nicolette Natali. Program director Kate Meisner's reviewed and edited my interview questions, as well as this episode's introduction. Thank you for listening.